2: Mike Duncan of the History of Rome and Revolutions, David Crowther of the History of England, and Kevin Stroud of the History of English will all be in the same place at the same time at a day devoted to thought-provoking podcast infotainment. On June 29, from 11am to 8pm, the Agora Podcast Network will be presenting the Intelligent Speech Conference at the Norwood Club Chelsea in New York City. In addition to Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud, some of your favorite Agora Podcast Network hosts will also be there, including Royfield Brown of Mid-Atlantic, Ten American Presidents, and How Jamaica Conquered the World, Eric Fogg of Reconsider, Steve Guerra of the History of the Papacy podcast, Claude Myron Guza of the Cannonball podcast, Aziz Aldori of the History of Westeros podcast, Raven of Tiny Vampires, ...and Benjamin Jacobs from Wittenberg to Westphalia. With all these amazingly talented individuals, you may be worried that there are too many for one day. But there will be three conference rooms featuring panels, talks and laser tag. Okay, there will not be any laser tag. But definitely a full day of panels and talks from a dozen of the best podcasters on the planet. But what if you might get hungry? Fear not, good citizen. The $175 tickets include dinner with your favorite podcasters while the $125 tickets will get into the Norwood Club to participate in the day. You can get tickets to the Intelligent Speech Conference by going to intelligencespeechconference.com. Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud, live and in person. Simply go to intelligencespeechconference.com. It was the best of time. It was the worst
3: was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches.
2: Away, man. These are the things that made England. We
3: shall
1: fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made England. a body but of a weak and feeble woman. These are the things that made England. And the king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things
2: that made England. England
1: and St. George! These are the things
2: that made England.
0: Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. The idea of this show is to decide on what things make England the way that she is. The country that, despite it all, we all feel lucky to be part of. Every week, David and I pitch to each other an idea to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive. And it goes into Jennifer's cabinet. Now, David, um, I've decided this week to yeah. choose a topic that is very close to my heart. Or I like putting in my tongue. Okay. That most English of dishes, curry. Did you just say it in
3: your tum? Yeah, in my Did tum. Did you really just say that? I kind of think of you as this kind of cool, you know, devil my care sort of bloke. Using words like tum, just, you know, just doesn't seem right. I'm sorry.
0: David, there, there is a streak in me, and maybe it's the part of me that connects with you, which is fairly set in the 1930s. Be careful now. <laughs> you know, in a world of black and white movies, uh you know, and, wow. and things like talking about my tum, right? It right. also just reminds me of being sat on me grandpa's knee.
3: Okay, but so anyway, else, should we move on now?
4: I did a gig in Birmingham. I've got to tell you this: the thing that gets me about the people of Birmingham is they seem to think that they invented the curry. Cause as soon as you get to Birmingham, we did this gig in Birmingham, they said, no, 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 no. You can't leave Birmingham unless you've had a curry. They never said it like that. They went, you can't leave Birmingham unless you've had the curry. They all say you gotta go for a curry. So there's me, me tour manager, me driver. So we went for a curry, we went to a place called Sunderland. we went for a curry, we walked along to this curry house. And, and it was a Friday night, so we did what every bloke does on a Friday night. We walked in, we ordered the food for 50 starving families. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of them, well, two of them, pop them, some big fish, want loads of them, loads of them. <laughs> and then we got into that thing that you get into. You know, the the, the ego thing. You say, what curry do you want? Oh, what curry you want? <laughs> you are not you well, I want, I want super vindaloo. <laughs> I want my curry, off the this curry, I want the hottest thing you've got. In fact, suck the curry, let me lick the oven. I want <laughs> to be in agony <laughs> At the end of it, I want to be in pure pain because that's the ego thing that takes over. Me. And we're having all this, this argument over his curry together. And then I got asked a question in Birmingham that I have never been asked anywhere else in the world. He said, Do you want a naan bread? I said, Yeah, we'll have a naan bread. And we got into that naan bread discussion like, What kind of naan? Do you want raisin naan? No, chocolate naan? Blue naan? Jackie naan? The whole of bread. I just said, Look, we'll have three naan breads. We'll have three naan breads. Three plain naan no, breads, and then the question came. How big? <laughs> I said, well, naan big. <laughs> oh, three big naans. <laughs> he said, do you want three family naans? I said, yeah, three family <laughs> I don't know if anyone has ever had a family naan. If you have them, go to Birmingham and order one. They are massive! <laughs> they come out on their own trolley. <laughs> Like a made they made a flower. come out, and we couldn't eat two of them. We took them out to homeless people and wrapped them up. So
0: one thing, though, one thing, and I would say is that I actually came to curry uh, quite late. Being of West Indian parentage, um, we didn't eat food from the Indian subcontinent kind of growing up. It's only as a teenager that I came to appreciate the delight that is curry. Now, curry, you'll know, is a dish that originates from the Indian subcontinent and it uses a combination of spices and herbs, normally ground turmeric, cumin, coriander, ginger and fresh or dried chilies. And of course, the word originates from southern India and curry is generally prepared in a sauce. Now, because this is such a ours now this, this 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 dish is ours now um we celebrate that's quite a statement
3: this dish is ours it's ours well it's, it's india we, we share
0: it we share it with india but it's ours a certain amount of cultural appropriation has gone on but in the nicest <laughs> possible way in the nicest possible way so we have every every october there is um national curry week that's how embedded this thing is. Is there? Yes. I, I
3: did not know of National Curry Week.
0: Yeah, I, I was aware. You go, to, you go down the Ladypool Road in Birmingham, which is the, the main thoroughfare for a for, yeah. quality, for a quality curry, or quality balty, actually. And whenever it's National Curry Week, all the signs are there saying, you know, you can have mm. two for one on your, on your tikka masalas, etc., etc. But National Curry Week and Indian restaurants contribute $5 billion. With a B oh, to the British economy.
3: That's how big. Billion pounds worth up. of curry. That is fantastic. We must have, and we must go to your, what was the street again? The Ladypool Road. The Ladypool Road, right. We must have uh, things that made England get together on the Ladypool ro- Road and eat Nothing. our way down the Ladypool Road.
0: <laughs> Nothing would give me greater pleasure. <laughs> Rather so. than
3: a pub <laughs> crawl, we'll have a curry crawl.
0: We wouldn't get very far if we're going to eat our way down it, unless we had, like, half a poppadom at each place. There's a lot of curry houses Half a poppadom
3: on a curry, please.
0: <laughs> Three pies to lager. As we are going down the Lady Road, we're going to see there is one dish that's going to be on every menu, and it's chicken tikka masala. Is that
3: the one that's invented in Glasgow, yeah?
0: Well, mm, there's lots of conjecture about that. And we'll come to that later. But chicken tikka masala has been the nation's favourite dish for more than 20 years now. And it has to be said that curry has changed the way that we eat. We haven't just added it to us, so we're not a nation of pie munchers anymore. <laughs> now, going way back when, David, the East India Company went to India and founded the Raj in the 17th century. By the 18th century, the East Indian men wanted to recreate the taste of India back home in England. So by 1733, we have our first recorded public curry. It was no, served in, right? 1733? Yeah, 1733. 1733, yep. yep, nice. yep. So, uh, and it was served in the Norrish Street Cafe House in Haymarket in London. And this kind of led to curry and rice becoming staples of restaurants in and around London's Piccadilly um, by the 1780s. The 18th century is also vital in the marination of Curry David because right. uh, it, the, it was the century that saw the first cookery book containing the, that Indian recipe in the English language. It was a book called The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Simple by Hannah Glass. It was ah. produced in 1747.
3: So that general cookery book with curry in it, or a book about curry.
0: No! General book about cooking. It was about uh, demystifying uh, the, that kind of culinary arts. And within it, it had three recipes of Indian pilau. And later editions had recipes of fowl or rabbit curry and Indian pickle. Today, there are over 30,000 Indian restaurants and takeaways across the UK. But the first purely Indian restaurant was the Hindustani Coffee House, which opened in. Guess when? Uh, right,
3: Hindutani Coffee, which opened in uh, 1923. 1810. Hey. So during
0: the start of the reign of King George Fourth, And it started serving at 34 George Street near Portman Square in Mayfair. And that's kind of important because a lot of returning East India officers actually lived in and around Portman Square. Mm. The owner of the restaurant was Saik Dean Mohammed, and he was born in 1759 in present-day Patna, and was then part of Bengal. Yeah. And what he tried to do was to provide an authentic ambience with Indian cuisine at the mm. highest perfection. Guests could sit in custom-made bamboo chairs surrounded by paintings of Indian scenes whilst they enjoyed a good curry. But within two years, he went bust. Basically, oh it was a man way ahead of way his ahead time. Way ahead of his time. He
3: should have come to Loughborough. It'd have been fine here. <laughs> we love carrying Loughborough.
0: Well, I, I don't know about that. He, 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 he thought about it and he thought we got all these old East India men in yeah. and around Portman Square. I'll put the restaurant there. The reason why he went bust is because so many of those East India officers could yeah. afford their own
3: chefs. So oh, they
0: didn't need to right. go out
3: and eat. Oh god, they had it made in a home.
0: Yeah, they had it all at home. Now, bankruptcy or not, the old soaks who had lived in India and liked to come back home wearing their Indian clothes continued to eat the food of the subcontinent. So between eighteen twenty and eighteen forty, the importation of of the spiced turmeric, just mm. for one example, which is a primary ingredient in making curry, increased threefold in England.
3: It really shows you,
0: you know, people had their cooks and their chefs actually at home.
3: So presumably at this point, he said, asking on a point of information, what you're saying is that curry is a posh food.
0: It's a posh food. Yeah. And what we're going to see, um, the attitudes are going to change um, in the mid-Victorian era. It's going to fall out of kind of favour. But through Queen Victoria and then through seafarers, it kind of comes back. So this is the first wave of curry, so to speak. So what
3: you're saying is when the Earl of Watsit goes down and has his curry, he doesn't Mm. ask for eight poppadoms and three pints of lager. Is that what you're saying? That's
0: exactly what I'm saying. And there is a point point after the Second World War where beer and lager, Beer and curry becomes kind of synonymous, but we haven't quite got there yet. Okay. Okay.
4: 1857,
0: the year of the Indian Mutiny or the Bloody Revolt. Now this changes Victorian attitudes towards India. So, though again, those old East India men were basically banned or at least shamed from wearing Indian clothes in and around London. And so those old East India men who had gone native, yeah. they kind of mocked, and that's kind of put away. Cory was removed from fashionable tables throughout London. Sorry, so why was that?
3: You, oh, because sorry, because of the the uh, rebellion.
0: Yeah, yeah, because of the rebellion. Though the army was still served it. So the, stu- the army still liked a good old Ruby Murray. Now there is one member of the British upper classes, as I said, the a- aristocracy, who bucked this trend. And that was Queen Victoria. Now, she employed Indian servants, the most famous being Abdul Karim. Right, There's been films, there's there's been two or three uh, films about about his relationship with with Queen Victoria. And he impressed Vicky with his chicken curry with dal and pilau. So much so that the British royal family at the end of the 19th century, uh, to have a good curry was their thing. Her grandson, George V, was said to not really have any interest in food at all, unless it was a curry or a bit of Bombay duck. That's the only thing King George V actually truly liked.
3: I'm exaggerating a little bit.
0: Just just, just, just a little. But, right. he was, but he was a man who he, he liked what he liked and he didn't like anything newfangled. He grew up eating curry. Right. Now, there are many things that are now considered to be typically English, which have their origins in Indian cuisine. Piccolili is one of them, which is an English version of an Indian pickle. And kedgeree, which is obviously a very traditional British breakfast, or so, so we like to think. But its name belies exactly where it really came from.
3: And we've always assumed it's not English, kedgeree, haven't we?
0: Well, that's true. But it's seen as quintessentially English, isn't it? But the the name does kind of give it away. The name does give it away. I'll give you that.
3: And the fact that it's made with curry in it.
0: All right, (laughs) smart-ass.
3: But we're saying is ours. We're saying
0: curry's ours. English (laughs) is a lardy cake. (laughs) Listen, we're saying that English is ours. So we're at the the start of the 20th century. And that's an important time for the second wave of curry because... uh, What you have now are many Indian sailors who have either jumped ship, abandoned ship or just been dumped by their crews in English ports and they start to open cafes to cater for other Indians and Asians. Now, for the most part, they're not trained as chefs but they soon start to adapt their menus to cater for British tastes which is incredibly important for the dissemination of any cuisine and I'm always struck Uh, whenever you go, whenever I'm in America and have a Chinese meal, it's very different to a Chinese meal that I have in Britain, and I've never had a Chinese
3: meal in China. So you think, it's not just as a sort of westernised Indian food, it's actually much more specific than that, so if I went to Loughborough, I might have a different curry from Stockholm.
2: Well,
0: absolutely, And, uh, um, and there is the point, which we'll come to later, of there is the Birmingham variety, which is the ball so, so there are subtle local differences. But the whole world does this to, to cuisines. So mm. you say to an Italian, put pineapple on a pizza and, and they'll shoot you down dead. It's well, like you you with, wouldn't do such a thing. With justice, you know.
3: obviously. So what's fish and chips like in uh, Romania?
0: <laughs> well, I couldn't speak for that. I have been to Bucharest once, but I didn't actually order fish and chips.
3: Oh, No, I
0: tell you, fish and chips in America is always, always a letdown because it's Isn't fundamentally, it? it is fries you know even if they even if they're a little bit fatter than a regular fry cuz it's it's chips fries is
3: 10 times better than fat chips
0: oh david
3: come on nobody likes oh. fat chips fat chips suck
0: What do you mean nobody
3: no well, apart from you then obviously
0: anyway i'm at the dawn of the 20th century with the indian sailors who were not trained as chefs started to adapt their menus for, to cater for the british taste they also realize and this is important that by staying open late, they could earn extra revenue when the pubs closed. Ah, so thus the tradition I see of where a Friday night curry <laughs> after a beer was founded. You know,
3: I had to tell you, Royfield. Mm, I know you to be I'm going to warn you, but like you, I was very late to the curry, and uh, <laughs> so why do are you I... saying
0: it like that, David?
3: What, you, you cannot say it? curry in any other way than than, though, that, than that you come from Dudley. You have to. There is only a could I? I mean, I'm going for the could I? I mean, that, you know, it's the only way to say a curry. So I missed out all the way through university. There was mm. one curry house in St. Andrews, which was called the Balaka. Everyone would go there except me because I hated, I didn't eat curries. It ruined my university career.
0: It was an old girlfriend of mine. Uh, A woman called Ashley Hazel, who we were together for three years during and then after college. And she was an aficionado of the curry because she had actually had uh, an Indian boyfriend like a couple of years beforehand. And it was her that uh, opened my eyes. As I said, just growing up, working class Birmingham, black brummy kid, uh, 70s, 80s, I was aware of Indian restaurants, but it just wasn't something that we
3: did. I tell you, white middle class family. I mean, as far as my mother's concerned, uh, pasta was this um, appalling, uh, appallingly exotic foreign import.
0: It is amazing when you think just it how quickly... Is.
3: the world was so much more, of, um, yeah, much smaller. I mean, you
0: know, uh, it taste much more kind of parochial, and and it kind of goes to how one of the reasons why I think that curry is so important because it's a real marker of late twentieth century English culture Mm. you know a beer and a curry but anyway let's just finish up with this because these are a couple of more significant things in the kind of the the story of how curry has cemented itself in the english psyche so by the time of the kind of the middle 20th century in london we start to have a few kind of famous Indian restaurants opening up, so the Salut eh hind in uh in Holborn and the Shafi in Gerrard Street and the Sami opened at ninety nine <clears throat> sorry ninety nine regent street uh, which is the first high end Indian restaurant in the capital so we so the the start of this second wave of curry um starts with with the, with these salt with these sailors who kind of jump ship, so you have places like uh Uh, London was a port then, was a dock port, and then like Cardiff and like Liverpool. But really it's with the post-war Commonwealth immigration to England. And then after 1971, the influx of Bangladeshi immigrants into Britain, that the palette of England is changed forever. You get a deluge then. Uh, Many of the Bangladeshi inhabitants, uh, when they came to London, went to the East End. Hmm. And so you go to Shoreditch and it's just, you know, you can't swing a cat for uh, an Indian restaurant. And the Bangladeshi uh, immigrants entered the catering business with such fervor that 60, so even today, that 65 to 75 percent of all Indian restaurants in the UK are actually owned by Bangladeshis. And today there are more Indian restaurants in greater London than there are in Delhi and Mumbai combined. Is that right? What does that say? Uh, I wonder. That like like really good curry. Uh, now, of course, curry has gone native. I did kind of mention this before. It's as English as the Thames. Now, us brummies, we've created the Balti, a refinement of the basic curry, traditionally cooked and served in an iron cast pot called a balty pot it was developed by kashmiri immigrants to the second city and it has been simmered in the west midlands ever since uh, curry is such an integral part of english cuisine so much so that by the late 1980s chicken tikka masala has been referred to as the english national dish it's where was, it invented, dish. Then,
3: uh, where was it invented then well then?
0: okay the exact origin is not Really clear now. The Scots do claim that it was a restaurant in Glasgow. I've read that it was a restaurant in Leicester.
3: Seriously, I thought it was from no chicken tikka masala.
0: No, it's it's definitely not India. So (laughs) I think it is. You know, not so much. Now the story goes: a bus driver came into an Indian restaurant coming off work, ordered a chicken curry. Uh, He sent it back to the waiter saying that it was too dry. So the chef added some tomato soup to it and sent it back out. The bus driver absolutely loved it. Within days, it was added to the menu because he came back with his friends. So that either happened in Leicester, some nondescript other bit of England, or... Possibly (laughs) Glasgow. Nobody really knows.
3: What do you mean, some other nondescript, as though Leicester was nondescript? Is that what you're saying? uh,
0: No, no. I quite like Leicester. Quite like Leicester. (laughs) It's probably one of those instances where two or three places more or less had the same idea at more or less the same time. And then it's kind of like coalesced. Because it's that whole thing, as we kind of said before, of when cuisines go out into the world, they get localized, and uh, tomatoes added to to sweeten the thing, w- with a little bit of cream. Anyway, very um, good. other UK derivatives include coronation chicken, which of course uh, is my uh, favourite, my a, very a little, favourite. Uh, tell me about filler. it. Exactly. A sandwich villa, which is invented to to commemorate the coronation of our Queen Elizabeth II in 1953. And then the final. Well, there are many other kind of curry derivatives. But uh, this dish is incredibly important, I think, because it really symbolises that cross pollination of East meets West. It's curry sauce or curry gravy on chips. So when you say
3: yeah, it, East meets West, are you talking about Leicester meets Birmingham then?
0: <laughs> it, that's exactly what I mean.
3: <laughs> so it's our
0: answer, the English answer to the Canadian dish poutine. It's served uh, with a warm curry sauce, uh, sometimes contains sultanas and some dried fruits over chips. So i put it to you, Dave. Chips? Yeah, chips.
3: Wait, chips with what?
0: Curry sauce over chips.
3: Oh, well, that's true, yeah, yeah. That's a big favourite in uh, in Scotland. So you put it to in me where? that it's an English
0: thing. In where? The north of
3: England. I know. I'm going to you the north of England doesn't exist. No, no. What I,
0: said, what I said was, what I said was, after the Lake District, England slowly peters out. And I was talking about the population centres, of which then Ken MacDonald did say, Wait on a minute, what about Carlisle? Carlisle bang on the I, I, anyway. I, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you Carlisle, but after Carlisle, there's nothing else worth talking about. <laughs> anyway, just to end up.
3: No, Scott, big favourite in, in uh, Scotland, I was going to say, curry on. Your well, curry up stuff. north,
0: when I went up north uh, to college, Uh, curry on chips massive 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 anyway as the one-time british foreign Secretary robin cook once said the national popularity of curry is a perfect illustration of the way britain in parentheses england absorbs and adapts external influences i'd give you curry sir
3: i'd give you curry so there are some crimes associated with curry of course you know, I mean, by and large, nobody really? side. Well, I just have to say to you, two, I've got two words to you: flock mm-hmm. wallpaper.
0: Well, funnily enough, I did have. I was going to insert a little witticism about uh, that very first Indian curry house, and basically say the reason why it went bust is because they didn't have the flock wallpaper. <laughs> Though, to be fair. I can't remember the last time I went to a curry house and there was flock wallpaper. Yeah, I,
3: yeah, I think I think we have finally lost the flock wallpaper thing. Mm-hmm. The other thing, of course, is fat legs, vindaloo. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's. Uh, <clears throat> oh, actually, I love that. Actually. I mustn't know why I that that is a crime. So I'm a bit the same with you. I didn't, I couldn't do curry. I couldn't do the spicy thing. As far as I was concerned, sausage was too spicy. So oh, stop it, David. No, really? seriously, I was t- terrible because my mother had fed me on boiled potatoes for twenty years. Mm. i exaggerate. You know, she was a very good cook, but you know, it was very English. Um and I went to Harlow uh and I had a lambassander,
0: mm-hmm.
3: which is very, very mild. Yeah. And so for creamy coconut milk, that's some almonds. One. Yeah. Oh, very nice. And so for 15 years I ate lamb. Lampis- I ate lamb mm-hmm. And then for another fifteen years I ate chicken, tikka masala, pita, rice and a naan bread. Mm-hmm. Um Oh, and ate papa doms, please, and then I ate just the other day. I ate something else—a dan sack or something—and this was a big moment for me. Uh, so the
0: dan sack can be a bit sweet, can't it? A bit of pineapple, um, and the what did you have with your chicken, or was it a bit of mutton? What was it? What type of dan sack was it?
3: I, don't, I can't remember. But actually, the thing I had was quite hot so I've got you know it's my. Um, Taste buds have dropped off my tongue. I've had to go more spicy. Um, So I I always sort of thought the saddest thing about curries was if I was, if I was, you know, this fine chef, you know, producing Mm. these superb dishes with, you know, all these melange of different flavors and all the rest of it. And then a bunch of blokes come in, sink 500 pints or larger, um, Mm -hmm. eat loads of poppadoms. Wool for hot curry, and then go up boasting about how hot the curry was. It must be a bit depressing, wasn't it? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it's a kind of like stoking a steam train rather than feeding people. And then nobody knows the difference between, you know, a northern Indian curry or a Bangladeshi or a southern Indian, You know, all these different variety that you you'd, you'd get in India. I assume, you know, as far as we're concerned, oh, a chicken tikka masala and a pilau ice, please know
0: what I mean well you kind of slipped there from a bit of scouse to a bit of a, the western <laughs> midlands but uh, I, I don't know how true that is right because I think one thing which I haven't actually said in this is that Indian restaurants are actually closing at um, an unprecedented rate and the, there's this really interesting article which I read whilst kind of researching this. It was a guy who basically runs the Indian Restaurant Association of Great Britain. Mm. I forget exactly what the acronym is, but it's not exactly, doesn't translate as that, but that's what fundamentally what the body is. And what he said is that British taste buds are changing uh. and are becoming healthier. People still want exotic and exciting foods, but they don't necessarily want heavy foods. Ah. Uh. And the one, yeah, yeah, and the want much healthier options. Yeah. So his thing is that though Indian food is still the most popular cuisine in England, actually in Britain is what he said. Um, a lot of the Indian restaurants haven't moved with the times in terms of cutting down the size of their menus and then also having healthier options. So you can see, you know, very much like if you're a professional working woman. And you want to nip out and get something to eat after work on a Friday, you wouldn't go uh, you, you, you're not, your first point of call is not going to be a big, fat, heavy curry. However, you still like exciting flavors yeah. uh, and, and, and you know new cuisines, etc. So it's still our by far our favorite dish, our favorite cuisine, but it needs to adapt with the times and, and the industry's having problems because of that really
3: well look i 'm very interested so um, of course i 've got the you know the obvious response to this you know i 'm entirely on your side, as you can tell uh, mm-hmm. you know loughborough is very proud of its curries in the seventies you know big Asian community, very proud indeed um, and you know i 'm not going to claim that uh, loughborough was uh, ahead of the curve in terms of race relations but you know, it gave a point of contact, which uh, without which, you know, um, things would have been, been even harder, I suspect. Um, so I'm kind of on your side, although, but the obvious thing is, you know, British rather than English. No, I think we can
0: safely say that the first point of contact when curry hit uh, our shores was actually England. All the documentary evidence was that um, it was East India officers in London. You know that the cookbook was produced in London, so it, it very much was uh, an English thing in the first wave.
3: Well, I'm going to get out of it anyway because I'm going to when I come to my next uh, one, I'm going to I'm going to want to stop you from using the British defence.
0: Mm-hmm. And then second, secondly, um, the second wave has its big kind of points of entry in ports of which Glasgow is a significant one. I will give you that. But um, in terms of the distinctness of, of Curry, I would say that it's kind of more, more English though. I take the point and there was actually um, an MP of Indian descent. I'm going to say Indian forward slash Pakistani descent who in 2009 tried to get the EU to declare that chicken tikka masala was kind of native to Glasgow. He did try and do that, but he could never uh, verify that, th- that the dish actually came from there. There's a whole load of disputes about it. It's kind of Leicester, it's somewhere else in the UK, but then Glasgow also has a claim as well. Mm. But I would say you, you look at the genus of how this quintessentially Indian cuisine has become Anglo-sized, and it and is primarily done through England.
3: Right. OK, well, look, awesome. I'm, prepared to, I'm prepared to go along with that. Uh, when are we ever going to disagree with each other? Nah, well, make? I mean, we disagree all the time, but it's all a bit feeble, isn't it? Because, uh, yeah. you know, we always put things in the cabinet, don't we? You'll have to do something really outrageous. I don't know, propose something which really isn't English. I don't know, like, oh, I don't know, I can't think of anything that's not English now. We're so, we're so general.
0: <laughs> the, the, the imperialist uh notion uh, mm. is english yeah we could just say we just like anglicize that down to a regular sausage you know, <laughs> anyway, you know you never you, like, like well
3: look you know right. it's not necessarily they getting it in the cabinet that's the key thing about this it's the chance to you know celebrate things you love about
0: True, true. And I think that's what uh, people seem to like uh, about the things that made England, if you look at the reviews on on iTunes. Now, David, shall we see what uh, our great listening public said about the last episode's topic?
3: Let's do that.
1: (sighs) Lovely cup of tea. How very meta it is that the topic of a nice cup of tea has brought harmony to our sometimes fractious group. David and Royfield themselves were unable to raise a storm in a teacup and for the very first time we have a unanimous vote on something going into the cabinet. Thinking about it, how could it be any other way? Tea equals England, England equals tea. But the good thing about this group is that while we might all agree on something, this does not mean that we do not have anything interesting to say on the subject. So, what is there to say on the subject? Quite a lot, it would appear, from the commenting by the good burgers of our Facebook group. 177 comments at the last count, and they aren't even all David. A lot of people commented along the lines of Penny, who pointed out how tea fixes everything. Except Brexit, that is. I couldn't agree more. We need a dose of ketamine to get through that one. A few people like Stephen and Marilyn tried to make the point that tea is also big in places like New Zealand and Scotland. But they both still voted it into the Cabinet, so there you have it. Melissa and Lonnie had a discussion on what the meal called tea constitutes. I think this is unresolved and dependent, as with so much in this country on class and maybe also region. We do like Melissa as, even though she is from the Midwest, she has not adopted that monstrosity that is iced tea. All in all, what we have in the group is a wonderful record of the lengths that people will go to to get a decent cup of char. There seem to be quite a lot of Americans who, like Leanne, import their tea. She posted a great photo of herself and a bag of PG tips that's about the same size as her. If only we'd known that Americans like importing tea so much. We wouldn't have had that frightful ruckus in Boston back in the day, and you could still all be proud Brits. Wouldn't that be nice? Fortunately, I held back from recording this roundup, as everything was just too lovely, too harmonious. Even our most outspoken commenters were beaten into meekness by the overwhelming power of tea. But then on Thursday evening, it all began to hot up, and David and Royfield bared their competitive streaks. David posted a ranking of the voting for each and every one of the things that made England episodes, and it turns out that David's proposals have received stronger backing than Royfield's. Is this because David is better at identifying those things that made England? Or is it, as Alan suggests, that Royfield eschews the low-hanging fruit that David prefers, like the bleeding obvious topic of tea? I, of course, could not possibly comment, but I will leave you all to make your own minds up and encourage you to come over to the Facebook group and chip in on which of our presenters makes the better choice of topics. It's great to see that the membership of our group grows and grows and while we have some fantastic stalwarts, I would like to take this opportunity to welcome some members who have joined the group in the past couple of months and we look forward to hearing your contributions. We've had Beck with no K, Dawn with an E and David with a baby, Jerry with a J, Gareth who is on the slide. Joe, the 17th of the French Royal House of Blois, a couple of Johns, Meredith, I love the name Meredith, Michael and Mike, who both joined us only last week, and another Michael, who sounds like he might hail from the Danelaw. We've had Pop Art Paul and Paula from San Diego. Penny is mightier than the sword. Philip, great having an Irishman in our midst. Richard who will not be the target of any of my weak puns. Purple-haired Sonia. Stefan, not only called Stone, but is actually holding stones in his profile pic. Stephanie, what a hat. Steve, putting the great into Great Britain. Royal Tracy. And finally, you. Not me, you. Sorry, very poor joke. As ever, thanks to Royfield and David, and thanks to everyone for making the Facebook group such fun.
0: Thank you for that, Luke. Uh, as always, what a great roundup, uh, David. Why don't you, considering that I've done the heavy work, the heavy lifting, yeah. the intellectual uh, heft of this show has all been me yet again. Sorry, what uh, why don't that? you wrap up, and then we could say goodbye, and uh, I'll see you again in two weeks' time.
3: Okay, that's very good. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Curry goes in the cabinet along with a chicken tikka masala pilau, Arjun and Nambri. An <laughs> uh, <laughs> and a couple of about 10 pints of lager. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Bye bye.
2: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility
1: with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you.
2: More at uh1.com.